What's good, y'all? My name is Jonathan Dumas, and this is the Real Talk with Dumas podcast, where I have real conversations with the people I see every day because we don't know what we miss until we miss them. And got another dope episode for y'all. Can't wait for you to meet this week's guest, but wanted to just share a few dope ways to continue to support the show. Number one, like, subscribe, share, and leave a review. It really helps other folks discover the show. Number two, follow RTWD on Instagram at RTWD Podcast. You know, send me a DM, send me your thoughts on the episode, send me some constructive feedback. And finally, by joining the Real Fam Patreon page, by financially supporting the show, you are literally helping run the show because this thing ain't free. Also, a big shout out to the Real Fam already. I know I owe y'all some stuff. Um, just be patient. It is coming. I absolutely promise. All right. This week, I am joined by Joel Perez. Joel Perez is the owner of Apoyo Coaching and a member of the International Coach Federation. He specializes in career transitions, career coaching, identity conscious leadership coaching, solution-based coaching, and professionals that want to develop their cultural humility. He also currently serves as an adjunct instructor for Brandman University in California and has over 20 years of experience in higher education, having served most recently as vice president and dean of students at Whittier College. He has previously served as the Dean of Students at Seattle Pacific University and in a variety of roles that encompass residential life, student activities, and student leadership at Pomona College and Chapman University. And Joel is currently uh, serving as an interim executive director for the Immigration Resource Center of San Gabriel Valley, which provides low-cost immigration legal services, educational events, and connection to local community resources. He also serves on the Board of Degrees of Change, which prepares diverse, homegrown leaders to succeed in college. Joel earned a BS in Business Administration from Biola University, an M.Ed. in College Student Affairs from Azusa Pacific University, and a Ph.D. in Higher Education Administration from Claremont Graduate University. What a resume, am I right? Um, I just stumbled right through that. Uh, Anyways, Joel and I had a great conversation about our experiences working in higher education, particularly in white, um, predominantly white institutions, and transitioning out of higher ed and how his vast higher education experience has influenced his coaching and consulting firm, Apoyo Coaching and Consulting. This was a fun and insightful conversation. All right, here's Joel. Hey, John. Joel, thank you so much for for joining the show. How are you doing today? I am doing well. Thank you for having me on uh, as your guest. Oh, yes. Thanks so much for hopping on. Um, Sorry, there was a little skip there. I'll fix that in post. Anyways, um, well... I just read your resume and it was long, so uh, I cannot wait to ask you all of the questions because <laughs> it's almost been like a, it feels like a been there, done that kind of scenario and all that stuff. So I cannot wait to to ask. But before we dive into all that other stuff, can you just take some time and share with the real fam, you know, a little bit about yourself? Yeah, well, as you mentioned, uh, I am currently the owner and executive coach at Apoyo Coaching and Apoyo stands for support for. Uh, in Spanish, and I am a native Angelino, born and raised in Los Angeles. Uh, My wife and I met during our undergraduate years, uh, and now this December, we will have been married for 25 years. Love to hear it. Yes. (laughs) We have four children uh, ranging from ages 10 to 17, so it's a bit crazy and busy. Um, And I'm also doing a lot of work, particularly around consulting, uh, diversity, equity, inclusion, helping organizations think through how to 
integrate, divert DEI work and really look towards integrating it and becoming part of the ethos of the organization to become more inclusive as many organizations are desiring to do. Um, so I am a son of immigrants. Spanish was my first language, first generation college graduate. Um, and so that's uh, led and uh, informed the way I view the world and how I do the work that I do. I love it. I love it. And you spend a, a lot of uh, your time in higher education and, you know, based off of just the time you spent in in school, actually going to school yeah. <laughs> and then also working in higher education. But I'm curious, like why education? Why? Mm. Wh what led you in, and drove you in that passion in education? Yeah, th that's a good question. Uh, I would say what really moved me in that direction um, as my vocation and initially my pathway um, was that as I was, an, when I was an undergrad, um, I identify as Mexican-American mm -hmm. and there weren't very many students or peers that looked like me. And uh, also there weren't very many administrators or faculty members that looked like me. And so in processing that, I realized that I, Joel Bettis, wanted to serve as a role model and be a mirror to students who look like me, who I who may share experiences like mine. And so that's what led me to pursue a career in higher education. Uh, I wanted to serve as a role model, as a mentor, to help students that we you know, shared my story, my background, so they can see themselves in the academy um, and really try to change the academy by getting involved, uh, being like myself, pursuing careers in higher education, either as a faculty member, as an administrator, so that we could leave a, a, an imprint or I could leave an imprint on higher education. And so that's what initially led me to higher education. And I knew pretty early on that I wanted to be a senior level administrator. Mm. And so that's what started that path to getting a master's in student affairs then a doctorate in higher education administration. And in my doctorate, I did research on institutions that had a strong desire to pursue change in the area of ethnic diversity and what mm. motivates uh, what motivates them and what motivated them to start that path. Uh, so a lot of work around organizational development, organizational change. But my initial entry or initial desire was based on my own experience, not seeing very many students like myself, faculty mm. and staff and wanting to be a role model and a mentor to students like myself. And I know like even because that was even some of my passions when I was in higher ed, but I only lasted five years. But <laughs> uh, I'm curious, you know, for some of the students that you mentored or, or, or during your time there, how I mean, it was probably like a lot of the same things that you were hearing and experiences that you were hearing at these institutions. Mm -hmm. Um, and just knowing like how white these like mm -hmm. PWIs are, right. um, you know, um, even thinking back to your like doctoral research, what were some of the things that you, you found and were those things like conflicting or between like the student experience and, and as you get up to administration, like kind of what were you seeing, um, both practically and, and in your research? Yeah, well, practically what I was seeing was institutions would do a really good job of talking about how they wanted to um, make changes, but mm -hmm. not a real uh, understanding of what it would actually take to make those changes. Uh, and which, which actually means disrupting the usual. 
and really mm. questioning um, what what they do and how and why they do it. Institutions were not set up for people from historically marginalized communities. They were they were founded by by white men, white Christian men um, that uh, had a particular focus in mind, a particular culture they wanted to create, which was not um, very open to difference or from people from different backgrounds who may have a different perspective. And yep. so you have institutions that, that at least have acknowledged that they need to change, but also administrators and leaders who don't know how to make those changes. Uh, and it wasn't, and, and I think a lot of institutions have realized that it's not just about adding more students of color mm. or aesthetically looking different, right? It's more about what are the internal systems and processes that may need to change, whether that's financial aid, um, faculty and staff and administrators that look like them, uh, really questioning why certain policies exist uh, that may be holding people back or not allowing people to be true, truly who, they're, uh, who they are or true to their salient identities. And that requires a lot of heavy lifting. And so even mm -hmm. though an institution can um, acknowledge that, what I have found and found in my research is you have administrators who don't know how to do that work and they may want mm -hmm. to do that work but they don't know how. And then when they start doing it, they realize, oh my gosh, this is really hard or this is really different than, than what we thought it was going to be. And we got to scale it back or, or, or ease up on the throttle. Um, when in reality, they got to keep pushing forward um, in mm. order for real sustainable change to happen. But that means rethinking structures with, with others in mind and that means just bringing people to the table. If you're truly going to be inclusive, you got to bring multiple voices to the table and include yep. them. And that may mean being really specific about hiring, um, about changing policies, about um, mentoring students, mentoring other faculty and staff of color, women, uh, looking at your curriculum. Uh, and that, again, requires a lot of heavy lifting. So in my own experience as a student, um, I was getting frustrated. Um, I felt I was getting a lot of lip service. Uh, <laughs> I, I felt like I wasn't, my voice wasn't being valued. Um, and if it wasn't for people early on in my, in my higher education journey, I wouldn't be where I'm at today. Um, my own story of resilience was I, I didn't do well academically after my first year. Um, right. and I needed some help and coaching along the way. And there were some people at the school I was at who came alongside me and helped me. And it was through that process that I discovered my voice as mm. a person of color, uh, and as someone who can initiate change from a student perspective, which then led to, well, if I really want the system to change and my, this is my opinion. Yeah. <laughs> I want the system to change. I got to, I got to get into the system. And the way mm. I saw that or the path I saw was to become an administrator, get a doctorate in higher education. And that would give me opportunity to sit at the table uh, with other decision makers. Mm. Um, and that's what I observed. That's what I experience. And now that's uh, some of my clients, I'm coaching clients that are like myself 
and or white people who genuinely want to disrupt but don't know where to start. Um, mm. So I coach them in that process to bring them to awareness of the things that they may need to change either in themselves or in the organization with which they in which they serve. Yeah, no, thanks so much for sharing all that. Yeah, I, I, um, I think back to my own um, experience, both as a student um, and then uh, working there. Uh, and I didn't get as high up as administration, obviously, but I just remember some of the conversations that I had of like people that kind of got up to that point where where they wanted to initiate change. There, were, there was a lot of like lip service there. Mm -hmm. um, but as you know, there's like, a, there is, um, you get to like board members and then you get to like bottom lines and all that stuff. Um, and a ton of red tape and bureaucracy of, of mm -hmm. higher ed um, <laughs> that um, that make almost like the necessary changes that like the big heavy lifting that you're talking about, it makes it feel like it's almost impossible. Um, and I just recall like even a conversation uh, that even last summer, black students and, and some alumni, current students, a hodgepodge of us, probably about 20 or 30 of us, you know, did a ton of emotional labor and and really challenged um, my alma mater to make some some changes and uh, really push them. And 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 in that conversation, we we uh, and this was from the president. It said something about like, I well, I don't know how to say Black Lives Matter with them being associated with like some of the things that that particular denomination didn't stand for, right? Mm -hmm. um, and then along along in that same conversation, brought up. Um, you know, well, from a publicity stand or a PR standpoint, and like to a, a group of like black students, he said that and just like, oh, okay, we, uh, from a business standpoint, I get what you're saying. But like, there's kind of almost I feel like sometimes with uh, there's a threshold of like people that like, uh, not a threshold, what am I? What's the word I'm thinking of, you hit a ceiling of people that are actually like able mm -hmm. or that want to and desire to evoke change in, in, in a realistic ways and systemic ways. In institutions and then kind of like when it comes to like board um because the board they're thinking about the bottom line and all that stuff so i'm i i i know that you you know that well you know that way more than i do <laughs> since you were literally in those rooms mm -hmm. um but uh i'm curious i'm curious even in your your consulting because i know you do a lot of work with higher ed and higher ed professionals like what are they doing or how are they responding like even in the last like two years because this is i feel like this has been a long time coming in particular um with you know 45 and his his run of presidency and then him getting elected mm -hmm. uh for higher higher ed institutions kind of like coming to these realizations and, and this new generation of of students really more aware and more active both on social media and actually like physically what are, what are some of the people what are you hearing from <laughs> from these administrators now uh, and the in the schools that you're working with like how are they trying to respond to this yeah well i think the in, the administrators that i'm coaching are administrators that already know that things need to change i don't have to convince mm. them mm. um they know they just don't know where to start or got what you, got you. to take um and they are struggling more with how do we navigate or balance the demands that we have from students right who want change like tomorrow mm. and the reality of an administrator changing an institution is not an overnight thing it takes time yep. so how yep. do you how do you balance those those 
um, pressures in a way that still brings about meaningful change, but helping students understand the process that it's going to take. Not that you can't do some of those changes overnight, but yeah. the reality is, as you've probably seen the image of higher education is, is this bohemoth ship, right? You think of an oil tanker that you can't just turn on a dime, even though that's what you want to see happen, but it takes a gradual, um, it takes a gradual shift in the rudder to get the ship to turn. Um, and that's going to take time, but you have administrators mm -hmm. that want to still disrupt, but don't know where to start. And so what I help administrators think through is how to link the change they want to see to the mission of the institution and now doing the same type of work with industry. Mm. And it, it starts really, it's centered in my opinion and some other researchers that I know, it starts with centering everything out of your mission and that mm. everything flows out of your mission. So if your mission says you're about producing students to be able to be successful in a diverse environment, diverse world, then what are you doing to actually get that to happen? And how mm. are you thinking about the services you provide, building the internal capacity with your staffs, with your employees? How are you in, how are you thinking in, in regards to mission, vision, values, and how initially, how are your employees, customers, students, clients experiencing it from a climate standpoint? And then what are those gaps that may exist there? And then how are you going to decrease the gap so that the climate improves for everybody that's involved within the organization inside and outside? So I, I, I base the work or I help leaders think about how to anchor that work in their mission, but it starts with mission. So if your mission is not clear that that's what you're about, then it may be time to change your mission. Right. Mm. That's what you really want to do. But yeah. if it says that, then you have the language in place. You just got to be true to what you say you're about. And it's thinking methodically with intentionality and changing the things that need to be changed. And mm. it does take time, but there's things you can start doing right away that will start to shift or change the culture of the organization so that. DEI or JEDI or whatever acronym you want to use, um, <laughs> yeah, is um, it, it is whatever acronym you want to use is truly happening within your organization. So mm. whether that's diversity, equity, inclusion, diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging, justice, equity, diversity, or inclusion. Those are great terms, and you may say you want to be about that, but if it's not anchored in mission, then it's always going to be about a person or a program. It's not going to be sustained. So I want organizations to change in a way that those efforts are going to become part of the ethos of the, of the organization, that it's in the water, right? So the metaphor mm -hmm. I use to get people, to help people think about it is it's like technology, when we were first introduced to technology or organizations or colleges, universities, there was resistance, right? It's expensive. Uh, it's not going to work. Um, people can't do this. 
Um, but institutions and organizations made the investment to help people along the way, whether that was coaching, training, um, incentivizing, right? The institution I went to, I took a typewriter with me to college to write papers. In my first year, I was given the incentive to write my paper on a Mac because the institution wanted to become a Mac campus. So I would get extra credit if I used a Mac to write my paper, even though I had a word processor. And it was to get students to start using the Mac, the Macintoshes on campus to familiarize themselves with it so they become one proficient. And so fast forward to now, you can't imagine any organization or institution not having technology as part of what they do, right? Yeah. Um, yep. And that's what I want people to think about when it comes to diversity, equity, and inclusion is that it to not even have to think about it anymore is just a part of who we are. It's what we do. It's how we hire. It's the kinds of questions we ask in interviews. It, it's the kind of engagement we want to create so people feel, feel, not just feel, but genuinely are included in the conversations. Mm. And, and I think that's a, well, I have there's multiple things that you said that come um, that yeah. <laughs> make me choose, trying to decide what direction I want to go. Cause right. there was, there was some good stuff in there. But the one thing that I like have not heard is like really like speak one speaking in um, high red speak, but like, and, uh, and really drilling down on it, it's about the mission. So if your mission is like student centered or something about that, that's language that actually can, you know, that can sure. sell like that. That's, that's great. That's like, easily transferable like it's not like a it's still a big lift but it's not like a humongous lift right like you could still sell like all right this is why you know um dei jedi whatever you want to use like you mentioned is important because it's like it's about the mission if we're doing everything through the mission like it's easier to do and i haven't heard that i haven't heard that um before and i think that that's a really good take um uh that surprisingly that gives me a little tiny bit of hope <laughs> a little bit of hope well i will say there is hope the, the challenge yeah. is you got to hire with that in mind right you got to hire mm, people mm -hmm. who can do this work and think creatively on how to do the work and it's not always about just having a script um to get the work done you have to hire people who understand that and are good at asking really good questions to bring people to an understanding of why this work is important. Um, and until you, so it, it, it requires building capacity for an organization that requires people. And that means mm -hmm. hiring the right people or helping people within the organization develop the skills necessary to lead in an, in a diverse world because the demographics have changed. They're not changing. So the individual work that I do, the way I talk about it is having a posture of cultural humility or mm -hmm. moving from cultural competence, which is important because you got to be competent, but it doesn't stop with competence. You have to, in my opinion, move from competence to humility because mm -hmm. competence alludes that you just achieved something you checked a box you attended mm. a workshop and now you feel like you're competent if competence is the bar 
I would say it's a low bar. I think it's having the posture of humility where you, you, you go in like this with your arms open, knowing that you don't have, you won't always have the answers. You may be a content expert, but things are changing around you just like technology is. So you have to adapt. And that takes humility because sometimes we want to just say, I attended that workshop 10 years ago. I, I should be competent, right? I should know how to do this work. Yeah. But the world has changed and you didn't change with it. But if you have a posture of humility, knowing that you engage in that work and learning and enter into conversations that are hard conversations, but you're seeking to understand, we would be better off. You would be better off individually and your organization would be better off because, you know, just like technology, things are going to change. But you have to mm. be comfortable with the comfortable with ambiguity because it's ambiguous. And you have to remain curious in those moments by asking questions of yourself and others so you're better able to do this work. Mm. That's a, those are really good points. I, okay. So I asked somebody um, last week, we talked about higher ed um, as well on our experiences because she went to the same institution that I did, okay. um, but she came, I graduated. Yeah. She graduated. Uh, oof like four or five years after I did um, just yeah. vastly different experiences. Mm -hmm. Right. And so, but a lot of what she was sharing was about the same like experiences that I had. Um, so I asked her this question, like, do you believe like higher education, like is still is higher ed, like a safe space for like, is there, is there a safe space for persons of color in higher education? Because these, these institutions, the system was built, on white supremacy by white men, yada, yada, yada. Um, and so uh, I'm gonna ask you the same question. Like, do you believe like higher ed education or higher ed in general in, in the US, um, is there a safe space or is there possibly a safe space in the future for persons of color? I would say yes. Okay. With the caveat. Okay. <laughs> if the institution genuinely wants to be relevant, in our time, they have to create that space. Because mm. like I said earlier, the demographics have changed. Which means that my kids are going, will be going off to college and they bring with them very unique experiences that requires people to have that posture of humility. At least I, I hope they have a posture of humility because they can learn from my children or the students that they serve. But until people really come to a realization of that, then I think it's going to be hard for them to create that space where students feel safe. Now, I would also say that safe space does not mean comfortable, right? Mm, mm -hmm. So there's going to be a level of discomfort, both by the leaders, faculty, but also by the students. So if we're okay with being uncomfortable, which means that we're going to probably have really good dialogue so we can share why there's a level of discomfort so we can come to an understanding of what may change or what can change in the immediate and in the long term. But it takes, you got to take baby steps before you can run, right? So some yeah. institutions, if we're going to stay within higher ed, are going to be better able to do that than others. And there's going to be some that are going to choose not to change. 
and that's their choice. But I would say their choice is going to lead them to become extinct. Yeah, I would absolutely agree with that. I think that there's um when you you mentioned that like oil tanker or that big massive ship, right? I think of like that uh that ship that got stuck in that canal. I can't remember the canal, yes. but there was like a ship that was trying to turn yep. and it got mm-hmm. stuck. Mm-hmm. Um and like all of the work that it took to like make sure that it was able to do that full turn. Mm-hmm. Um that's what I think about, but I I feel like, you know, yeah, I, I, yeah, I'm so glad for people like you, Joel, because <laughs> it's just, I mean, I only spent like five years in higher ed and then with, uh, you, you know, um, my wife Lynn's. And so she was, there, she stayed longer than me and like, she got worn down. So I got worn down from my own experiences and then I got worn down by her experiences. Um, so I, I, I'm so glad that there's people like you that are like still having conversations with these higher um, higher ed admin folks and trying to get them to turn that big old thing around because <laughs> I already know how it goes. Yeah. Um, well, thank, yeah, thank you so much for sharing all that about the, the higher ed piece. I do want to kind of like shift gears just a tad because okay. um, I know that, you know, you had your own higher educational journey and you shared about that. So I'm not going to ask too much more about that. But I am curious about like the shift from higher education, um, taking all that you learned from your own experiences and everything like that, and how you shifted to moving to like, you know, the nonprofit space or working now for yourself even. So what was the shift that happened for you that made that, you know? Well, I, I would I can't say it was intentional. I wasn't planning. Okay. Uh, which just means that something happened in my career that caused me to pivot because mm. I had to. Uh, It's not that I didn't have a desire to stay in higher ed when I left my last institution. It just circumstances were as such. And, and I realized that I wanted to coach Mm. mainly because of my own experience as a client of a coach. And then also thinking back in my life about all the mentors and advisors I had in my life who took me under their wings And I was doing the same thing with students and other administrators, young professionals, that the light bulb turned on with me, uh, for me, that made me realize that coaching was something that I think I could do and Mm. do it well. And because of my experience in higher ed, always because of my own experience, my own story of being a student of color in a predominantly white institution, a staff member and administrator of color um, that I developed some skills to help think about strategically how maybe organizations can change with Mm -hmm. DEI as a focus or as a, as a goal, right. To become more inclusive because of my own experience in higher ed. And so all that and the circumstances where I, that I found myself in led me to pursue a certification in coaching which then opened the door because I started coaching because I was trying to get all my hours in to get credentialed through the International Coaching Federation. And that door continued to remain open and I continued to take on clients. Mm. And at the same time, I realized I wanted to influence organizations to pursue the change that they at least were saying they wanted to pursue. And that I believe that I can come alongside organization, organization leaders to help them move in that direction. So 
I would say because of circumstance I found myself in and then, but the door open and now a fairly successful coaching and consulting practice emerged. Hmm. Uh, I professionally, I mean, we could probably do a whole other session on how you build your business and the power of networking, right? Cause hmm. that's really my story. Um, yeah. So the, the, the brand or the name I have and people know me, and I spent a lot of time years building that network that I was able to leverage that into where I met now. Um, the nonprofit sector was I, I, I'm, I'm on boards or was on boards for organizations that I believe in their mission. And mm -hmm. so in the case of the Immigration Resource Center, where I'm now the interim executive director, I was on the board. I was chairing the board. We had a need for an executive director, but weren't ready to hire a permanent ED. So then we had a conversation that I could then step into that role on an interim basis until a new, until a leader was identified and found. And at the same time, my business started booming. So my wife says, and I would agree, I have two full-time jobs. Um, yeah. <laughs> so, but I really enjoy what I'm doing. And, um, I still stay connected to higher ed. I'm still involved. Most of my, I didn't say, well, a lot of my clients are higher ed people, but I'm having clients now in the nonprofit sector, in mm. industry, for profit, um, that are coming to me. And most of my business is now referral, uh, because of that network that I have. And so people know what I'm doing and they'll reach out to me, uh, and then we'll have a conversation and then that may lead to either consulting or coaching. So, mm. That's what led me to, to establish and start Apoyo Coaching and Consulting was uh, a lot of it early on was circumstance, but then it was just, as I started coaching, I, I began to get affirmation that this was the right track to be on. And I've been able to help people achieve or come to clarity. So my tagline is, I listen, bring clarity, provide support. And I got the tagline from talking with my clients and they always mentioned you helped me come to clarity around whatever, mm. whatever problem or challenge they were facing in the way I coached. They, at the end of that time had clarity about what, what challenge they were facing and what they originally came to me for. That is awesome. That's awesome. Did you have a boil? coaching from the very beginning or was that something as you started working with folks when you got you know certified and credentials that that just that that just happened from yeah, the, I, your past I, clients yeah i knew i wanted to have a spanish word in my my business name and okay i again because of the mentoring piece that i had received and the encouragement the support the the word apoyo came to mind and so mm. that led to apoyo coaching and then eventually I added consulting because I started doing both. And I always knew I wanted to do some level of consulting, having worked with consultants myself. Mm -hmm. I knew that I still wanted to have influence on organizations to think strategically, uh, how to initiate sustainable change so that it lasts beyond a program and a person. Mm -hmm. And with the consulting that I do, that is what is what I'm doing. Um, but I always try to integrate, if possible, coaching with the consulting. So as part of that consulting engagement, they selected four leaders of their organization that I provided 
so many sessions for in coaching to help them think through how, what it means to become a better ally. And so I call that, as you mentioned earlier on, cultural humility coaching, mm. helping people develop that posture of humility, moving from competence to humility. I actually like that. And that's not, you're not the first person that I've seen like incorporate, that's a consultant and a coach that is incorporated, you know, foundationally having coaching as an aspect of their consulting package. Mm -hmm. I feel like, I feel like, cause it, in my own consulting portion, like I want, I have that similar idea of like, I don't want it just like I come in and do this thing. And then like, you know, it fades six months after I leave. Right. Um, there needs to be some long, especially in DEIJ work, some long lasting systemic changes, or at least that you can implement that la last longer. Right. Yeah. And I think the coaching piece is the other is the like biggest piece of that where that can that can initiate that that can keep it going that mm -hmm. that there are people that have the at least i don't, I don't want to say full knowledge and know-how but they are they have um you know met with you however many times one-on-one -on -one, individually asked these questions dove into it and have a greater understanding and kind of can continue to guide mm -hmm. uh the re rest of the team or the organization in moving forward yep. um so sure. i i like that portion I know that you mentioned in your story, um, Spanish was your first language. Uh, you were, you know, one of very few uh, persons of color that you saw at your institutions. Um, how much, you know, has your story influenced and had an influence on on the way you coach and even the way you consult when you go into an organization or when you meet with people one on one? It has a huge impact. I mean, it. it, it I always, when I introduce myself, I talk about why I do what I do. And, uh, but I also mentioned my identities. One is I'm a son of immigrants. Mm. Spanish was my first language. I am white presenting or white passing. And mm. I acknowledge that to me, that's a privilege. I see that as a privilege because I'm able to enter into spaces that my darker skinned colleagues or colleagues who speak with an accent have a harder time because they experience more microaggressions, not that I don't experience microaggressions, but I have mm -hmm. the privilege to walk into spaces because people don't know that I'm Latinx or Mexican American, even though I identify that way because I come across as white. Mm -hmm. And I use that as an, as a source to have conversations about change because then once people get to know me, they realize there's more to me than what they see. So it's that iceberg theory, right? Uh, Got it. Yep. 10 to 15% of, of an iceberg above sea level, but the rest of under, under sea level is this vast, expansive connecting. So values, beliefs, faith, uh, gender identity, sexual orientation, all those things that you, people get to know me after they get to know me, people get to know after they get to know me. And so I'm able to enter spaces where people maybe with darker skin or, or people who don't speak an with an accent aren't always invited into the conversation. Um, mm -hmm. And so, so when I introduce myself, I, I name those things. One, to get people to realize that, oh, okay. Um, but also to just mainly to get conversation about what it means for, to privilege, to be privileged, right? To acknowledge mm -hmm. privilege, even as a person of color, I know I have certain privileges. I, I'm, I'm cisgender, I'm male, I'm white presenting, I'm a US citizen, I'm upper middle class. That comes with privilege. And, yeah. and I think it helps people have a better understanding 
of what privilege is. So my own story, my identity or my salient identities uh, are things that I enter into or frames the way I look at organizations, frames the way I coach, um, also helps me attract certain clients uh, because they can, they know they, that I identify with their story um, and can provide space to have conversations around like, what does it mean to code switch? Um, what does uh, it mean to experience racial battle fatigue, uh, mm -hmm. microaggressions, uh, those kinds of things that are real experiences that people have in the workplace or in whatever community they are. And then we talk through how do you show up with being able to be true to yourself and true to yourself means one, understanding what your salient identities are and mm -hmm. how they show up and how you want to make sure you don't have to bury them or ignore them in the way you lead and the way you interact with other people. So I call yep. that identity conscious leadership coaching um, because I think we have to lead, we can lead and you can be a successful leader if you lead with your identity. Whatever those, mm. whatever those salient identities are, you should feel good about leaning into those because they can guide you in helping you be an effective leader or community member, church member, whatever you, whatever context you find yourself in. Okay. So I'm starting to get excited because now we're getting to the <laughs> realm of like leadership. Stuff. So, okay. So I'm going to hold on to my question because I want to spend a good amount of time talking about, you know, um, identity conscious leadership coaching because I... I watched your videos. I did research on on you before we got to the call, mm -hmm. and I love I love this. Like I love this so much. Mm -hmm. um, and I think it's incredibly impactful. Whether you're you know white or you know mm -hmm. um, any other race or ethnic or uh, um, whatever, to understand your salient identities and leading out of that is just mm -hmm. incredibly important. Mm -hmm. That's right. <laughs> um, but before I dive into that, what I am very curious. So. Um, so when you do these coaching exercises and talk about your privileges and everything like that, and then you, you meet one-on-one, -on -one, um, in particular, I'm, I'm curious about, uh, white leaders in organizations or white people that you coach, what is kind of like their response to that? Cause I know for me, I know the privilege conversation is always tough. Mm -hmm. Um, and it can be really, uh, in particular with white people, um, but I, I'm curious about how, how that conversation goes as you even share some of the things. Cause I know it probably could be not off putting or it catches people off guard because you yeah. mentioned like a, a phrase you did like, a, Oh, uh, <laughs> I've literally seen that look on people's face <laughs> sometimes. So I'm curious how those conversations go for you. Yeah. Um, well, John, Jonathan, I, I think, you know, that with coaching, right. They're coming to me. Right. So mm. they already have, some knowledge or some level of knowledge where they want to engage in this work. Yeah. And so, so the conversation around privilege or white identity, um, isn't a hard one for me to have because they have mm. already explored it, maybe not at a very deep level, but they started to. So I always start with using the intercultural development inventory or the IDI to get them to understand where they're at along in this continuum right? Mm -hmm. Intercultural mm -hmm. development continuum. And then we start there because it's a great self-awareness tool. And then we talk about how they show up in leadership if they're in the 
if their developmental orientation is minimization or, or reversal or defense. Uh, and then we build out from there. And the other thing I focus on is helping people approach whatever it is that they're working on with the growth mindset or using Carol Dweck's work mm. of having a growth mindset instead of a, um, you know, the opposite of growth mindset or fixed mindset. And people begin to realize that, oh, I, if I take this posture, this approach, and again, using the humility language, that I have something to learn in this, that I'm not an expert, that I need to explore my feelings about privilege, power, so that I can be better, a better leader and lead more effectively because the organization I'm leading or the people are leading are different than me. So mm -hmm. how do I help them? Because if your role as a, your role as a leader should be to help those you lead be successful in their roles, then you need to know who they are. And maybe it means having conversations about their salient identities. So they, so they feel, feel and genuinely feel included in the organization. So I, I generally, I mean, just to be upfront, I don't have a lot of like people argue with me. Um, mm because they're already coming to me with some basic knowledge or at least some understanding or they've begun to acknowledge that a privilege uh, because they have something has happened. There's been some dissonance, some mm. level of discomfort that they want to explore and they've chosen to explore that with me. And so what yeah. I do is I, I, I create a space so they can ask questions without feeling like they're going to be judged um, mm. labeled a racist, a bigot. Um, yep. and, and that's worked really well in, in those, in those coaching engagements. Yeah. I think that's more of what I'm, I, I, I'm, I'm hitting at. I would imagine that they would be, they would want to explore that question a little bit more or be more open mm -hmm. and honest about it. Um, cause then here's somebody like, even when I talk about my privilege, like I have a, you know, master's degree, middle-class, Yep. Um, you know, both, both of us in our household have master's degrees. Like, um, you know, even though my partner, uh, you know, was lost her job in, uh, last year, like we were fine. It wasn't like a worry or a concern. Um, I'm able to start a business and quit my job. Like, those are all like privileges that, <laughs> that I'm, that, you know, and so I think when I, when I've had conversations around my own privilege, even I'm an able-bodied cisgendered male, you know, mm -hmm. Um, athletic, you know, like all these different things. Uh, th they're kind of caught up. Like I talk to people about privilege, they're caught off guard when I say that. You know, in particular, <laughs> when I talk to white people, when I tell them, like, yeah, I have a ton of privilege. Like, right. but there's still like things that are that are present in there. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, that that that's uh, I love I love that you know the people that you're you're speaking with, um, kind of are exploring that are are having um, some inner dialogue yep. and really mm -hmm. choosing to go deeper in there. Right. Yep. Um, okay. So I want to talk about, <laughs> I'm, I'm not even going to let, I'm not even going to hide the, the fact that I'm so excited about this. Cause I love like talking about leadership, talking about different, talking about this because it's, it's incredibly important. So what is identity? You mentioned a little bit of it. What is identity conscious leadership coaching? Well, it is like I talked about earlier, it's helping a person get clear about what their salient identities are. So whether mm -hmm. that's, you know, in my case, Mexican-American, male, uh, 
cisgender. Um, and the way I do that is I use, and I'm sure you may have seen this is the identity wheel, right? Mm, Having yep. work through that exercise. And then we talk about it. And then I asked them, how is this showing up or is it showing up in how you lead? Um, and let's talk about that. So using coaching questions to, to provide clarity about how their salient identities are showing up or not showing up. And then the question is, why aren't they showing up? Um, and, and how do you feel about them not showing up if, 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 if you feel they're salient, but they're not showing up in the way you lead? what's happening there or, or to share with me what's happening. And what I have found is generally people will realize that they, or just automatically acknowledge that they code switch mm. um, in order to be successful because they feel like they have to be in order to achieve whatever, how they define success within that organization. And so then the question is, I always ask is, do you feel healthy right now? Do you feel, what do you, are you okay with code switching? I'm taking notes, Joel. I'm taking notes. So, so, I asked, so, I, so I asked them, do you feel, are you okay with code switching? Because in reality, some people are okay with it. Mm -hmm. My role as a coach, and you know this, Jonathan, is not to change people. That's not my role as a coach. My role is to bring clarity by asking questions, mm -hmm. right? So now nine out of 10 times people will say, realize that it's a problem because it's, it's leading to an unhealthy life, either mm. emotionally or physically because they're tired of it, which then leads of course to racial battle fatigue. Right. And, mm. and then there's, you know, challenges there. So I always ask first is, is, do, are you okay with it? Okay. If you are, okay, then that's good. If you're not, let's talk about that. Um, what, what would, what would need to change in order for you not to feel like you're always code switching? And generally what tends to happen is people then move into this organization's values does not match my own values. Mm. And, and so if your values, if my values is, is as a Latino, Latinx, Mexican American man, family comes first. If I'm required to be here 80, 90 hours a week, clearly I'm not able to spend time with my family, but that's a value of mine, right? Family is a value. So if there is incongruence and generally people will identify this or that's where the clarity comes in, then they realize, I mean, this is not healthy for me and I mm. should maybe think about something different. And then it become moves into career coaching, right? Is how do you think intentionally about transitioning out? Um, or if you can't transition out or you're not able to, what can we put in place to help you cope? or strategies to surround yourself with people who can support you um, to help build you up, encourage you. Or if you really want to change the organization, what does that look like? Um, so always start with one, getting clear about the self-awareness piece, which is always key in leadership, self-awareness around what, it, what are your identities? What are your salient identities? How do they show up? If you're experiencing code switching, are you okay with that? And if you're not, what needs to change? I will say now my target or client, you know, ideal client are mid to senior level professionals mm -hmm. of color, particularly with this kind of coaching that I'm doing, because most of them are not comfortable with it. They've, they've gone through their careers and they realize the toll it's taken on them. Mm. 
what I want to do when I do this, like today, or I'm on a panel or I speak and I talk about identity conscious leadership coaching, I want to hopefully talk to the younger professionals who are just starting out so they can get clear on their values and maybe choose to work or lead in organizations that aren't going to lead them to experience racial battle fatigue. Mm-hmm. And can you explain racial battle fatigue? Because I, I feel like I know what it is, but just in case anybody's wondering. Yeah. So racial battle fatigue is when you, as a person from a historically marginalized community, in this case, race, right, racial, um, are feeling beat up because you mm. have had to speak for everyone in your ethnic group uh, or, you know, all the microaggressions that you may be facing or experiencing. Um, have taken a toll on you. Uh, You are mentally and physically exhausted and you can't wait to get home to be with others that may look like you, think like you, to get re-energized. And you're just tired. And as I've shared more of that with certain groups, people generally exactly know what I'm talking about, but they've never had the language to name it. Now you can Google racial battle fatigue and you'll, you'll find a lot of academic journals uh, talking about it. So there's, there's definitely a more of a theoretical um, unpacking than what I did, but that's the general sense. Um, And so my hope is when I talk with, if younger professionals or I'm mentoring younger professionals is to help them understand. Now I'm an example of this. When I was a young professional, my, my, I wanted to move up as quickly as possible. I wanted to do things that I knew would set me up. And that at times required me to code switch and to be okay with that. Right. Mm-hmm. But I realize now in my, I'm not that old, but in my, my later age, I've become more aware of the toll that takes on me and why it's important for me not to be in situations where I feel that way. Hmm. But I'm again, my target audience, target market are mid to senior level professionals of color who already know that. Uh, Not that I wouldn't work with the younger professional, but my hope is when they read what I write or or hear me speak, that they will start looking at or evaluating their organizations with that eye in mind. The other thing I, I. I've you could you to- could also send them my way. You can send them my way, Joel. I'll, I'll work with it. <laughs> All right. The, 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 the other thing that I um, I want people to know is, um, especially young professionals, what I have found is that people don't aren't clear on what their values are. Mm-hmm. So if I were to ask someone, even mid to senior level professionals, because this has happened to me, what are your what are your values, Joel? Joel inevitably doesn't know what his values are. Joel will repeat what the organization's values are or what the organization Mm. he wishes to work for's values are. He is not clear on what his values are. So when I do career coaching, when I do identity conscious leadership coaching, um, I spend time having the person identify their values or do a values exercise because no one's ever done that work with no one ever did that work with me. Yeah. Right. I mean, yeah, we talk about, well, what are your values? And generally you think about, well, this is what I want in an organization or this is what excites me about my organization's values. That that's important. 
but you need to be clear on what your values are. Not that your values won't change, but if you're clear on what your values are, then it helps you identify the types of organizations and, and the organizations you want to be involved in that will help you be successful because there's congruence. Yeah. Right. So if your values family and you're clear on that and you start interviewing for a company or an organization where you realize you're going to come in conflict, your value of family is going to come in com conflict with what their expectations are or the workload is like, that may not be a good situation for you to be in. The earlier you can identify what your values are, the more the likelihood will go up that you won't end up choosing an organization that will lead to racial battle fatigue. No, that's good. You know what? We're going to end it here. I know I've, <laughs> I've kept you longer than I was supposed to, but that that's a good, that's a good word to, to end on. Uh, because I think there, yeah, there's, I just, I have some clients that I'm working with that that's a word, that's a word for him, Joel. So I'm gonna leave it there. <laughs> I would love, I love for, I would love for you to just plug, um, you know, where people can find you, your business, everything that people should stay up on about who you are and what you got going on. Yeah, well, I'll do three. I'll do. I'll say three things. One is LinkedIn. So if okay. you Google, if you not Google, if you search my name, <laughs> uh, Joel Pettis, you'll find me. The other is my website. So it's www.apoyocoaching.com. Apoyo is spelled A-P-O-Y-O and then coaching.com. The other project that I have out there, excuse me, it's on LinkedIn Learning. The title of the course is Strategies to Develop Self-Awareness. Mm -hmm. And I talk about uh, microaggressions. I talk about um, getting clear on who you are, your values, um, strengths, all those things. Because I do believe that everything starts with developing a strong sense or recognizing who you are and how you're wired. And that'll help lead, lead towards becoming a more effective leader. But it starts with self-awareness. Self Feel free to send me a message on LinkedIn and I respond rather quickly. Uh, and I'm always It really does. <laughs> yep, there it is. Uh, awesome. All right. And then I'll also plug all of that information in the show notes so folks can find it just to make it a little bit easier multiple you know hitting from all kinds of places but joel thank you so much for showing up um, and being here and sharing all of your your knowledge i learned a ton i took notes so i could um apply some of those coaching tactics in my own work great thank you jonathan for having me it's been a pleasure absolutely Big shout out to Joel once again for coming through on RTWD, sharing all the wisdom, all the knowledge, all of his story with us. Seriously, thank you so much. If y'all haven't already, please go check out the show notes. Check out what he has going on at Apoyo Coaching and Consulting. Um, all of that information is going to be in the show notes. Now for some RTWD logistics. We are back. I missed y'all. Um, it's really good to be back. Really good to, um, talk with y'all again. Um, yeah, it's been a minute. I took a unannounced hiatus cause I needed it. And also because I need to really focus on common culture, uh, my own business and it is up and running this first month of January has been really, really full, um, which is good news, but also bad news for my sleep schedule. So I'm trying to make sure I get all that stuff on track. Um, and then other good news for RTWD, I am for real, for real this time switching to week uh to week podcast no more two 
uh, per month, but going to every week. I actually have a long slate of guests that came through um, the Black Speaker Collective, which I'm a part of, um, which has some phenomenal, phenomenal people there. And they're going to actually be coming through and dropping some knowledge, dropping some wisdom, making us laugh, making us cry. Maybe I don't know. It's going to be a really good time. Y'all, I am beyond excited for the guests that are coming up so um yes once again thank you all so much for rocking with rtwd staying listening going back and listening to episodes again sharing the stuff leaving reviews i love y'all so much y'all are wonderful i wish you the best please stay safe out there omarion has lost his everlasting mind um and the spreading of the covid is going around so just take care of yourselves wash your hands get vaccinated do not wear a mask all that stuff but until next time y'all Peace.